Hello, good afternoon, everyone, and a warm welcome from Singapore. And thank you for joining us on this event hosted by the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. Today, we'll be discussing a book entitled Rethinking Salafism, the Transnational Networks of Salafi Alama. And of course, we do have with us the author of the book today to discuss the pertinent issues related to the book. Um, a bit about the book before we enter the discussion, and I, I'd like to, to discuss this rather extemporaneously, you know, rather candidly. Of course, I do have some notes with me, um, but it would be good if we have a you know, forthright discussion with our author today. And a bit more about a book uh, that we are discussing today is that it was published last October by Oxford University Press. And the main, I guess, the gist of the book is about looking beyond existing literature discussing transnational jihadi networks, where the book also discusses how quietists and activist Salafi clerics work across borders to, to preserve and promote what is deemed authentic Islam. I won't go too much into this because, of course, this will be the flesh of our discussion today, but I'll let our uh, author express itself a bit more later. Now, moving on to a little bio introduction of our author today. Uh, who is Dr. Raihan Ismail. She is a senior lecturer at the Center for Arab and Islamic Studies at the Australian National University. She was a Discovery Early Career Fellow from 2019 to 2022, and she was also the co-recipient of the Max Crawford Medal in 2018, awarded by the Australian Academy of the Humanities. Besides the latest book, she's also the author of Saudi Clerics and Shia Islam, published by OUP as well in 2016. And of course, like I said, the book that we are discussing today was published last October. Dr. Ismail has also been the co-convener from 2015 to 2018 and convener 2019 to 2020 of the Political Islam Seminar Series for various Commonwealth government agencies, including the AGD and Defence. She's a regular commentator in the Australian and international media on Islam and Middle East politics, and she appeared as a panelist on the ABC's Q&A program. So, a very warm welcome to Dr. Ismail today. So before we begin our discussion, I'd like to tell our audience that if you'd like to put in a question, please do so in the Zoom chat box, and then I can, of course, read them out to our speaker for today. So without further ado, let us enter into the thick of the discussion, the book, and let me put forward our first question to our speaker. Uh, which is, you know, what prompted you to, to write this book, number one? And of course, what are the contributions that you think it will have to existing literature? So over to you, Raihan. Thank you so much, Clemens. Um, thank you so much for inviting me and thank you to everyone for attending. I can see some familiar faces as well. Um, so when I started this project, initially it was kind of based on my first book project, which was part of my PhD. So the first book project, I looked at the attitudes of Saudi clerics towards the Shia. And um, while working on this project, I examined you know, what the Saudi clerics said about the Shia. But what's really interesting for me is um, understanding the categorization of Salafism. Um, and that was discussed in my first book as well. 
um, how Salafi clerics in particular categorized or divided into three broad categories, quietist activists, as well as jihadi uh, clerics or jihadi um, groups. And what happened was that I've realized that in terms of the Shia, that categorization doesn't quite gel, doesn't really explain the attitudes of Saudi clerics and Salafi clerics in general. And some quietist clerics were vocal against the Shia, quite vitriolic against the Shia, and some activists were the same. Um, and some activists were, you know, particularly someone like Salman Al-Auda from Saudi Arabia, um, was quite accommodating um, in his attitudes towards the Shia. So that's when I realized that maybe that categorization um, or that typology needs to be reassessed. And that's how I started the book project. I thought, okay, I'll have a look at the Salafi typology and perhaps reassess Salafi typology. And I know scholars have written extensively on Salafi typology and so on, but I thought, you know, looking at that case study, particularly examining the Shia and the attitudes of Salafi clerics towards the Shia, um, I embarked on this project. Um, so in terms of contributions, um, I think I can see a number of scholars who worked extensively on the subject as well. Um, what I wanted to do, uh, basically look at three things. The first thing is to examine the transnational networks of Salafi ulama or Salafi clerics. I use clerics and ulama interchangeably. Um, and I think I'm quite liberal with the ulama here. Um, but I wanted to look at the networks of these clerics in three countries, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. And I've selected them for a reason. I know Saudi Arabia in particular, you have so many um, Salafi clerics who are very active. And Saudi Arabia is seen as the face of modern Salafism. Um, in Kuwait, they're very active as well, despite the fact that it's a much smaller country. Uh, but having said that, Salafi clerics in Kuwait are very active uh, internationally. And in Egypt, they're very um, popular. So Salafi clerics in Egypt, you know, very popular. And that's why I've selected the three countries. Um, so again, going back to contributions, Again, that's a very good question. So the first one is to look at transnational networks of these clerics to assess the origins, how they work together, to look at um, the collaboration and cooperation between these clerics. Second, I wanted to look at local circumstances of these ulama and whether or not local circumstances affect or destabilize the networks of clerics. And I think I've managed to discover a number of examples of how local circumstances affect or destabilize the networks of these clerics. And the third uh, contribution perhaps is the reassessment of Salafi typology. Uh, and that is really going back to uh, assessing um, Victoria Wicks's categorization of Salafism and therefore looking at various issues, including social liberalization, um, whether or not these ulama can be categorized or divided along quietist activist lines. Uh, particularly when addressing social issues. Um, and according to my research, I don't think that reflects the attitudes of these clerics. I hope I've answered your question. I know I'm just looking at a number of issues here. No, you have. I think you summarized it perfectly well, the, the three points that you've made. But I wanted to, to go deeper into that point on typology and categorization, because that was you know, something you dealt with in the book and also specifically talking about the Shia issue, which you did devote an entire chapter to that. So, um, you know, at the beginning of your book, you, you divided these three 
into three kind of uh, groups. And you have the quietist slash theorist, you have the hierarchy slash activist, and then you have the jihad. So three groups. So if you could kindly outline to uh, our audience, you know, uh, you know, in a nutshell, what their attitudes generally, you know, consist of, and also how things have changed over the years. I probably, you know, not going too deep because I guess there's a long history go in going into that. But perhaps uh, you would be best to to outline this first before we go deeper into specific events or, or issues. Yeah. Yes. Um, again, um, scholars have written extensively on the typology, um, but in terms of understanding the three different categories, of course, you have the quietest and within the quietest trend, you have uh, sub categories as well. So some would say that those are, they are clerics or radical quietists or described as radical quietists and so on. But generally the quietists tend to support the state um, they're apolitical, but some contest that idea as well. Of course, there's so many definitions. Um, the debate is vibrant on the subject, but having said that, they're generally supportive of the state. And this is just a simple definition of that. Um, and when you look at activists, um, Salafis, often they're very um, you know, vocal, they discuss political issues. Some scholars argue that they're very similar to the Muslim Brotherhood in terms of their political activism, but when it comes to theology, when it comes to jurisprudence, they maintain and retain Salafi identity. Um, but they don't advocate violence, for instance. Um, you know, violent activism is something that you know, um, Haraki or activist Salafis tend to, to, to avoid. And of course, the third is the jihadi Salafis, and we're talking about um, theoreticians, militants, and so on, who subscribe to Salafi ideals, but again, advocate uh, violence as a way of um, engaging with, you know, with politics and so on. Um, and of course, in the book, I don't look at the third category. I feel that, you know, people have, you know, discussed the issue extensively. There's so many books on the jihadi networks and so on. And I felt that um, I wanted to focus on the first two uh, trends within Salafism. Thanks, Raihan. Um, and so my first question now that we've established kind of a base or foundation for the discussion is really, you know, about that whole transnational term that you used, uh, you know, at, at the center of your, your book title. And, you know, somewhere along the way in your book, you mentioned that, you know, the Hajj or the pilgrimage or such religious occasions and events could be a point of confluence for, you know, uh, personalities, clerics to to meet and exchange ideas and could be the birth of a, of a movement, for example. And one of them, and I remember it uh, well, is about uh, Hassan Abana from Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood, and Ibn Saud. And you talked a bit about, you know, uh, their meeting at the pilgrimage. So could you tell us a bit more about this and other, perhaps other examples where these kind of meetings, and you know, what were the motivations? And usually when, when you have this, leaders meeting at, at the pilgrimage and whether or not this came to you know, fruition, whether something came out, concrete came out of these kind of meetings. Yeah, of course. Um, so I started particularly, you know, looking at the origins and the nature of transnational networks of these clerics. And I've realized in my research that Rashid Rada uh, perhaps was um, the person who actually fostered uh, in the transnational connections with the Saudis, uh, particularly the Najdi clerics um, 
in before before the establishment of the third Saudi state. And it's really interesting looking at Rashid Rada and his activities as well, his relations with Ibn Saud, um, the fact that most clerics, particularly those who subscribe to Salafi ideals in Egypt, were traveling back and forth from Egypt to Saudi Arabia. And I find that really interesting, particularly when studying periodicals, um, as well as um, Rashid Rada's magazine, Al Manar, for instance, looking at how he discussed uh, Saudi, Saudi Arabia, praised the Saudi religious establishment, praised Ibn Abdul Wahab, praised his descendants and so on. So you can see them developing um, these relations early on, particularly during Rada's, uh, Rada's time. And I would say that Rada you know, fostered great relations with Ibn Saud himself. And more importantly, um, the Saudi state was very receptive. The Saudi state embraced Rashid Rada and his clerics. So here you're looking at networks of clerics in which they fostered personal relations, but also professional relations. Um, and I traced, um, which was really interesting for me looking at these periodicals, managed to trace um, how um, even someone like Prince Ney, for instance, visited Egypt and he pledged support to the Salafis in Egypt, basically arguing that the Salafis are Saudi Arabia's religious ambassadors um, and had meetings with them and pledged financial support as well. Uh, so I thought it was really quite interesting looking at the early networks uh, nurtured and developed through um, education, pilgrimage, and so on. Um, when it comes to Hassan al-Banna, um, again, in terms of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, there are reports suggesting that Ibn Saud did meet with Hassan al-Banna, but was never really interested in Hassan al-Banna's um, uh, political thought. Um, and the Saudis in particular focus more on the Salafis in terms of fostering relations because they felt that they're very, a lot closer uh, to the Najdi traditions and so on. Um, and this is where um, someone like Rashid Rada really played an important role in um, bringing the Saudis into the Salafi fold because before this, they were known as Wahhabis, derogatorily identified as Wahhabis, but Rashid Rada in his um, articles and writings and so on started to describe them as Salafis um, and praise Ibn Saud as well as his, um, his ulama or his clerics. I hope I've answered your question, Clemens, but I think in terms of, um, you know, back and forth, edu religious education also played an important role. And maybe I can add a little bit more as well. Um, Salafi clerics in Egypt not only traveled to Saudi Arabia, they were cooperating with the Saudi clerics, but more importantly, they began to occupy important positions in Saudi Arabia. Um, and I felt that was really interesting, not the Muslim Brotherhood, um, despite the fact that the Saudi ruling family tried to foster relations and allowed Saudis, uh, you know, members of the Muslim Brotherhood to travel to Egypt and to Saudi Arabia and establish themselves there, particularly again, uh, when they were fighting against Gamal Abdel Nasser. Um, but important positions, only Egyptian Salafi clerics were occupied important positions. And I, I, I would argue because of the theological closeness to the Najdi traditions and so on. So someone like Abdul Razak al-Afifi and other clerics, they occupy important positions in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, thanks. And, and, and taking, you know, singling out a point about, you know, this 
transnational connections going back and forth, the clerics going you know, in and out of their borders. And also, this is where you know, local circumstances or the domestic you know, uh, dynamics come into play because you know, obviously the two countries will have different, uh, uh, different kinds of environment or room for these clerics to, I guess, to expand themselves. So how, you know, could you give like some examples of how these acted as either constraints or, you know, a way of, you know, expanding or expansion? Yeah, um, it's a very good question, Clemens. Um, in terms of the Salafis in Egypt, they've always practiced political quietism um, and supported the Saudi state. Uh, sorry, the, the Egyptian state, despite the fact that they fostered good relations with Saudi Arabia, always supported the Egyptian state. Um, groups such as Ansar al-Sunnah al-Muhammadiyah, an Egyptian Salafi um, association, um, would often praise Gamal Abdel Nasser. So the Suez Canal, for example, they would um, write um, articles and send letters to Gamal Abdel Nasser and praise Gamal Abdel Nasser's bravery and commitment um, to protecting Egypt and so on. Um, and that's always been, you know, the, the attitudes of Salafi clerics in Egypt. But having said that, it was post-Mubarak time that you started to witness Salafi clerics in Egypt um, changing their attitudes. And for a very long time, they've maintained that, you know, political quietism, it was working for them. The Muslim Brotherhood occupied uh, the political space in Egypt. So political Islam was very much dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafis in Egypt were quite happy. Like, yeah, that's all right. We, you know, we, we were quite happy to talk about, you know, authentic Islam and so on. And they maintained relations with the with Saudi Salafis, but tried not to comment on politics. Even when they commented on politics, they're very supportive of their state. And they're also very supportive of the Saudi state. Um, and that, that is because they wanted to maintain quietism. Um, maybe I'll give one example of them supporting the Saudi state is that when um, the first Gulf War happened and activist clerics in Kuwait and in Saudi Arabia started to question um, the Saudi state for allowing US troops to be based on Saudi soil. And here you're looking at the crystallization of the Haraki movement um, within Salafism as well. The Egyptian Salafis maintained quietism, but also wrote an article in support of the Saudi state saying that it's outrageous what these people are doing. That demonstrated that transnational networks and their support for their co-religionists in Saudi Arabia, they supported the Grand Mufti's Fatwa, for instance, um, the Saudi Grand Mufti's uh, Fatwa, Ibn Bez's Fatwa. And they are in Egypt, but they're like, no, we're maintaining our political quietism and it's transnational, the way we foster these ideals. But things, again, political circumstances uh, change. And post-Mubarak's time, that's when some of the quietists decided that maybe there's room for us to participate in politics. Maybe there's room for us to actually demonstrate that we are also interested in power. Um, so a number of clerics, for example, started to talk about political activism. Um, they started to criticize uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, but some criticize uh, Mubarak's regime and so on. And one cleric in particular, Ishaq al-Hawani, used to be praised as a true quietist um, 
truly knowledgeable, a true quietist, committed to the quietist ideal and you know, authentic Salafism. But in post-Mubarak time, he fostered relations with um, a number of clerics, particularly the activist clerics. So again, some would argue it is the changing circumstances that compelled him um, to you know, change his attitudes as well towards political activism. So I've kind of dealt with a number of examples as well, trying to understand how these clerics change their attitudes, how they behave as well, um, and perhaps even express the limits of transnationalism. So many would argue that transnational networks uh, fosters collective solidarity and so on. But when it comes to local circumstances, you do have to be a bit, um, a bit, a bit careful as well. So maybe now, now I'm getting excited with the examples, Clements. Um, in more recently, in 2019, um, one of the prominent clerics or activist clerics in Saudi Arabia, by the name of Aid al Qarni, used to be one of the really prominent in uh, promoting activism and so on. And some argue, or at least I'm arguing that um, the rise of Muhammad ibn Salman, the changing political environment in Saudi Arabia made it very difficult for activist clerics to operate. And in 2019, he came out in support of the state and praised Muhammad ibn Salman and denounced activism, particularly the Sahwa movement. Um, of course, that caused a lot of uproar in various parts of the Muslim world. And I would say the Kuwaiti cleric Hakim al-Mutayri, for instance, criticized him on Twitter and said, what's happening? Um, he, you know, I'm, I'm so disappointed in him. I think that's one of, one of, one of the things that he said. Um, but here limits of transnationalism, again, they used to be good friends. Um, Aid al-Qarni even wrote uh, an endorsement of Hakim al-Mutayri's book, for instance. Uh, so again, I'm demonstrating that how local circumstances can destabilize transnational networks of clerics. Yep, yep. And, and these are the kinds of events that could, you know, cause an evolution to, to appear in terms of the stance or attitudes of the clerics. But there are also events with... Uh, uh, regional implications, and I think you, you talked a bit about Mubarak, but then there was the uh, Arab Spring. And then after that, you have uh, CC, our CC coming in. And then you also have, you know, I'm going stretching it a bit, you have the Qatar blockade as well that came up. So, you know, could you just pick out, you know, some instances in this development of trajectory or the, the shifting stances of, of the clerics based on these kind of regional events that happened during you know, 11 and then 17, 2011, 2017, you know, were there shifting attitudes in that sense among the quietists, among the hierarchies? Yeah, um, I, I, I would say in terms of um, post-Arab um, uprisings, um, quietist clerics were quiet. <laughs> Uh, I think they were quite nervous and they were monitoring the situation in the region. And despite the fact that people were celebrating, um, you know, post-Mubarak, celebrating the Arab uprisings in certain countries, not in other countries, of course, the Salafis would never acknowledge it in Bahrain. Um, but in celebrating um, the gains made by the revolutionaries, for example, the quietists were, were reluctant to comment on issues. 
Um, the activists, on the other hand, were vocal. They were ecstatic. They were so excited about the development that they praised the revolutionaries and so on. And that lasted for a few years um, because of the development that happened afterwards with the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power and so on. That actually really galvanized uh, the Haraki networks and activated the Haraki networks. But having said that, post-2013, particularly with the fall of the Muslim Brotherhood government, uh, the rise of ISIS, um, Islamism suffering brand damage as well, um, really affected the activist fortunes or political fortunes in the region. And what I've witnessed is a, a, a shift from activists being vocal, because many of them were arrested as well, the quietest then took over. And they started to question activism, started to question revolution, started to question a few things that happened during the Arab uprising as in post-Arab uprising. So what I've discovered is that um, quietest clerics in Egypt, in Kuwait, um, and I know, sorry, a big fan of Zoltan's work as well in terms of uh, Salafism in Kuwait, and I know he appeared with Salim al-Tawil, so a prominent Salafi cleric in Kuwait who's a, you know, a quietist, um, these are the clerics who are quite dominant uh, in their rhetoric at the moment. They're the ones who are discussing um, issues um, and supporting states in the region. So the quietest kind of took over in many ways. Um, and activists are operating in obscurity, in exile, some are in prison and so on. So I think there's definitely a shift uh, in terms of um, in the, promoting um, activism and dealing with the political circumstances in the region. Yeah, yeah, and and earlier on, you also mentioned in, in passing about you know the Saudi Arabia, the kingdom under Mohammed bin Salman, who's who's acting like de facto leader at the minute, and of course he has reigned in you know pretty much the clerics, and he has his vision twenty thirty, and we did briefly discuss this with Stephen Lacroix uh, several months ago. Uh, you know, and what's your take on 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 this move by by the crown prince? And you know, and and if you have encountered in your findings uh, again shifting attitudes, how you mentioned there's hierarchies, there's quietness. How are they reacting or responding to to the policies by the crown prince? Mm. Well, it's a very good question, Clemens. I I think in terms of supporting. Um, MBS and Vision 2030, it seems that the clerics in Saudi Arabia have very little choice. Um, those who even question, briefly question uh, the Saudi ruling family, they've been arrested um, in jail and there are reports of torture and so on. Uh, so, someone like Salman al-Awda um, or Awad al-Qarni, um, they're in prison at the moment. Um, and therefore, you're looking at um, a different environment in Saudi Arabia because before MBS, clerics had the opportunity, of course, limited opportunities, but still had the opportunity to question the state. But I think it's very difficult at the moment. And even um, quietest clerics have also been targeted by um, the Saudi ruling family. Um, some who refuse to endorse social liberalization efforts propagated by the state have also been targeted um, by members of the ruling family. Um, what's interesting for me is that looking at some clerics who now they're just supporting the state. 
uh, even though they were activists originally. Someone like Muhammad Al-Arifi, who's known, I like saying this, but he's known as the Brad Pitt of Sheikhdom. Um, people comment on how good looking he is. I'm not sure about that, but but having said that, um, he used to be one of the activist clerics, but came out in support of the state, in support of MBS, uh, in support of Saudi Arabia's boycott of Qatar, for instance. And I wrote about him in the book and saying that perhaps he's a bit, you know, he does change his opinions occasionally, but there are reports which I have not really mentioned in the book um, that he is under house arrest, he's been targeted by state security apparatus, um, and he was not, he's not allowed to travel and leave the country, for instance. So even activist clerics who used to be very vocal are now careful, and those who are not careful are in prison. And I think in terms of demonstrating support for the state, you have to be vocal. You can't just say, I'm gonna not say anything. I'm gonna be quiet and not talk about politics. I think even that is not an option. So you have to demonstrate vocal support for the state. Um, and that's, the, that's what I would say when it comes to uh, efforts, but there are many supporters. I think MBS has many um, supporters within the religious establishment as well. Yeah, if I may take this question further, uh, and then before that, I'd like to encourage our audience, members of the audience, to put in your questions in the chat box. While I put forward another question on, on, the, on the kingdom, which is, you know, based on what you just said, you know, there seems to also be a promotion of moderate Islam under, you know, under the crown prince. And, you know, you address this in your book under one section titled, uh, you know, Our Wahhabis, also Salafis. And I think there was this section there, and you mentioned earlier about Rashid Rida uh, trying to bring the Wahhabis under the Salafi fold. And so you know, my question is, how does this tie in with Saudi Arabia's uh, current promotion of moderate Islam and its past dealings with, with Wahhabism? Because the Crown Prince himself, in an interview last, last May, he said, you know, he, he declared this aspect of the kingdom as out of date. So what, what are your thoughts on, on, on all this? Yeah, fascinating development, uh, I would say, in terms of um, the crown prince kind of moving away from Wahhabi ideals. Um, and of course, you know, we've had this discussion earlier that Rashid Rada really wanted to make sure that the Wahhabis are identified as Salafis and therefore they're part of the Sunni movement in general, because the Wahhabis were considered as an extremist tribal sect before. Um, but obviously that change, particularly in the 1970s, uh, Salafi books were changed from Wahhabis to Salafis. They've used more Salafi Salafism or Salafiya rather than Al-Wahhabiya. Um, I don't think Muhammad ibn Salman really shows commitment to Wahhabi ideals you know, through his promotion of moderate Islam. And I think in many ways that is a shift, at least that's my reading, that is a shift from uh, staying true to the pact made between Ibn Abdul Wahhab and Ibn uh, Muhammad Ibn Saud uh, to something completely different. So reconstructing uh, Saudi identity in many ways as well. So we're focusing on moderate Islam, we're looking at social liberalization, uh, we're moving away from extremism. Um, and it seems that um, the idea that your national identity or religious identity uh, is no longer as significant. It's important, but not within the framework of Wahhabi, um, Wahhabi ideals. And I think that has been quite successful 
um, propag successfully propagated by Muhammad bin Salman. Um, there are also clerics who are very supportive of that of that project. Um, I would say someone like uh, Hatim al-Auni, and I've discussed Hatim al-Auni extensively in the book, where he is a reformist, um, a Salafi Wahhabi reformist. So he's arguing that, yes, we respect Ibn Abdul Wahhab, we respect the Najdi, Najdi tradition, we respect the descendants of Ibn Abdul Wahhab, but they've made mistakes. Um, and we have to acknowledge that they've made mistakes as well in some areas. And therefore, it is okay for you to move away from some of the um, some of the writings or rulings of Ibn Abdul Wahhab and the Najdi uh, and the Najdi tradition. So here you're looking at post Salafism, as some scholars have argued, uh, where some clerics in Saudi Arabia do support that project. So I think, despite the fact that um, there are those who are very critical of Muhammad ibn Salman. Um, there are members, uh, you know, ulama within the religious tradition that would endorse what he's doing as well. And some would say it's about time uh, that yeah. you move away from Wahhabi tradition. Yeah, and, and you and you talked about it's about time. And I think here we it's probably apt to mention uh, Iran in the picture because you you wrote about Iran as uh, the Iranian Revolution first as 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 an event that changed quietist elements in Egypt but not in Kuwait and, and Saudi Arabia. And, and um, you know, the recent events, of course, have shown that, you know, they are both talking, the kingdom and Iran are both talking. So what goes down, what dribbles down to the ground in terms of the clerics? What, what's, the, what's the take now uh, on the ground and how has this evolved since 1979? And, mm -hmm. and also after the passing of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, for example, later on, how has this attitudes, you know, change over the years? Of course. Oh, it's a great question. It's not going to be an easy one to answer. Um, I think in terms of Iran um, post-1979, the ulama, particularly Salafi ulama, not just in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, in Egypt, um, they have been vocal um, against Iran and did not recognize the legitimacy of the Iranian revolution as an Islamic revolution. And that's pretty consistent in terms of their uh, rhetoric and so on. Um, and until recently, Salafi ulama, um, whom I've looked, you know, discussed in the book, don't tend to accept the legitimacy of Iran, but are very critical of Iran's political activities in the region, you know, the thought that they're exporting the Iranian revolution or they're destabilizing Iraq or destabilizing um, Yemen, for instance, they support for the Houthis, they support for Hezbollah, support for Bashar al-Assad, um, are highlighted by, um, is highlighted by, by, by these clerics. Um, when it comes to the Shia, I would say Salafi clerics are divided into two categories, at least that's that's my, my reading. Um, you have those who are, you know, advocate a traditionalist view. And the traditionalist view would argue that there are, you know, issues with Salafi theology, um, not Shia, Shia theology. There are various sects within Shiism, but largely they're deviant. Um, removed from Islam, particularly the more extreme sects within the Shia. And their understanding is that Iran is divisive. 
um, Iran is a subversive force, a destabilizing force, and it's very difficult to see them um, accepting um, Iran as um, a positive force in the region. That fear of Iran um, is, is widely circulated, or widely held, or widely believed by these clerics. Then you have the moderate, or not the, the progressive ulama, I would say. And it's very tricky for them because Salafi theology um, really criticizes the Shia. Um, it's very difficult for Salafis to accept the legitimacy of the Shia. And that's because of the nature of Salafi ideals, the issue of the oneness of God and so on. Shia practices are seen as deviant. So it's so difficult for them uh, to accept the legitimacy of you know, various Shia sects for that matter. But the difference is, uh, lies in the rhetoric and the frequency of um, uh, rhetoric of these clerics. Um, these clerics, particularly those who um, I, would, I would claim as progressive, um, are quite careful when discussing the Shia. They're very critical of Iran, but they're very careful when discussing the Shia in Kuwait. Uh, they're more careful when addressing the Shia in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they're more careful when addressing the Shia in Iraq, for instance. Um, and they deal with Shiism as a political issue rather than a theological issue because they just don't want to go there. And it seems that it was a, yeah, some Shia are acceptable, some are not, but let's not focus on that. Let's talk about their political activities and Shia and Kuwait are citizens like us. We have to be very careful, very respectful, but Iran is a problem. So I don't think... Uh, the attitudes towards Iran have changed, but I do think that you do have the progressive uh, Salafi clerics who try to embrace the Shia um, in various um, countries, particularly if, the, if they're in Arab countries, for instance. So it, that, that's how I, I, would, I would look at it. At least, you know, that's how I um, discuss the issue in the book. Um, but what's interesting is that in Egypt, um, the Salafi clerics in Egypt, uh, quietists, activists, they, all of them, from my understanding, have been so vocal against the Shia. Um, and this is despite the fact that you have only, what, 100,000 Shia in, in Egypt, a country of what, almost 90 million people. Um, and it's puzzling that they're more vocal, they're, they're more vitriolic when it comes to the Shia. And perhaps I would you know, argue that they don't have to deal with the Shia very much. The Shia are treated as a deviant, mysterious entity, um, as a sect, and they are always very suspicious of the Shia, um, and they don't see them, they don't engage with them, they don't see uh, Shia politicians and so on, unlike Kuwait, for instance, or Shia leaders uh, in Saudi Arabia. So I would say in Egypt, it's very different. Thanks, Ryan. I want to come back to that because this is where it gets interesting and you reassess that typology, you know, in terms of the clerical attitudes towards the Shia. But we'll come back to that. We have a question uh, from the floor from Matthew Gray. Matthew, thank you. And he says, great presentation, Raihan. Many thanks. One question that occurred to me is that you don't spend a lot of time in the book on Salafi views vis-a-vis uh, -vis democracy and parliamentarism, apart from this from some discussion on Tawhid or Hakimiya as a concept. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little more about how various Salafis have discussed democracy and parliaments in practice in recent times? For example, how they view Kuwaiti parliamentarism and how they engage in and responded to the electoral politics in Egypt. Mm. 
Great. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you for coming, Matthew. Matthew is a mentor, so I'm really um, so excited to see him. Um, so in terms of, um, yes, I, I, you know, you're absolutely right. I haven't really discussed that very much in the book. Um, but I think in terms of Salafi attitudes towards democracy, for instance, um, activist clerics in particular view, in, in Egypt, I would say, view democracy as a problem. Um, it's a Western construct, it's a Western concept. And in many ways, um, if we practice democracy, it will be a Western imposition on Muslim societies. But having said that, in post-Mubarak era, they haven't really accepted um, democracy, but what they've done is argue that, yes, we have to participate um, in order for us to come to power. Eventually, that's going to have to be the case. So not accepting it as a legitimate political process, but arguing that that's the system, we have to participate in the system, but that doesn't mean that we accept uh, the legitimacy of democracy because of um, the oneness of God and so on. Um, but it is a way to actually change the plight of your society. It is a way to maintain Islamic principles and Islamize uh, Egyptian society. Uh, so I think you have that as well. Um, in the context of Kuwait, for instance, I think Zoltan is here. Sorry, I keep looking, um, <laughs> addressing you, Zoltan, but I think you've written extensively on the subject as well, particularly looking at Kuwaiti parliamentarians and so on. Um, and you have ISA, for instance, um, it's a group that promotes political quietism, but realizing that coming to power is important, not coming to power, participating in elections, participating in the political system is important. You have to support the state, the ruling family, but it's important um, in order for you to promote um, Islamic principles and so on. So it's more like a hybrid quietist um, activist group. So they deal with the issue of democracy, um, which I haven't really dealt in the book, but they talk about it uh, when they ask questions, when they engage with the religious rulings and so on. Uh, the general attitude is not very positive, but it is seen as a, um, as a necessity, particularly if you want to implement changes within your society. I hope I've answered your question, Matthew. Thanks, Raihan. And so thanks again, Matthew, for the question. I want to come back to uh, your earlier comments on, on Iran and, and you know, uh, attitudes towards the Shia community. And of course, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia, there has been instances, there have been instances of uh, trying of, I would say, reconciliation. Right? And, and these are often initiated by the king. For example, King Abdullah, he had a national dialogue uh, when, he, when he was in power and he sought to improve the relations with the Shia communities. And, you know, under such circumstances, you know, what, what is the feeling on the ground from the Salafi, Salafi clerics? And, and that's part one of my question. Part two of my question uh, goes back to Iran and in what ways did the revolution instill collective solidarity, you know, among these Salafi clerics? Because you use the term collective solidarity uh, and that, that portion of your book comes after you say that there's an entrenchment in the divide between quietis and haraki. So, and then subsequently you say there's a collective solidarity towards, you know, in this case. So, so you know, what, how, how did your line of thought come about in, in this sense? So I wanted to hear more from you. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, I think when it comes to Iran, the Salafi ulama 
are generally very suspicious of Iran. Um, you know, even after the 1979 Iranian revolution, unlike the Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, uh, members of the Muslim Brotherhood also celebrated uh, the gains made by the revolutionaries, did not really criticize Iran. They thought it was pretty great. Um, of course, they had issues with Iran later, um, but the Muslim Brotherhood was generally receptive of the Iranian revolution. But for the Salafis, I'm, it's very difficult to see them accepting Iran as a positive force in the region, or at least try and repair relations with Iran. Um, they've always been very suspicious of Iran, and it's very much like the Saudi ruling family as well, very suspicious of Iran and Iranian activities in the region. Um, so in terms of um, Salafi clerics, as you've mentioned, the idea of collective solidarity, here I argue um, that through publications, through sermons, through lectures and so on, religious rulings. The Saudi ulama, Salafi ulama in Kuwait, Egypt and Saudi Arabia endorse each other's work, um, republish each other's works, comment on each other's uh, works as well, saying that read this uh, cleric's work, for instance, he talks about the Salafi, uh, talk, talks about Iranian influence and so on. Um, so I think when it comes to Iran, you do see that collective solidarity um, in combating Iranian influence in the region or reminding others of Iranian treachery and so on. And that's, that's the kind of language that they use. Um, what I would say is the progressive clerics, um, they, even when they criticize Iran, they're very different from others because they don't use the term Rafada, for instance, uh, the rejectors, that is seen as a derogatory identification of the Shia. So these clerics are a bit more careful. Someone like Salman al-Auda is more careful, very rarely that you hear him use the term Shia. And when he discusses Iran, um, he will look at Iran within the framework of politics rather than theology, rather than religion, because he didn't want to offend the Shia in Saudi Arabia tried to be careful with the Shia in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and other parts of the world as well. Um, so here, the progressive, again, in terms of what they talk about, they're more careful. But when you press them hard, um, and some tried, um, that's when you see the Salafi thinking com coming out. That's when they say, yes, if you identify a deviant Shia uh, who you know, engages in deviant practices, you cannot reply to his salam, for instance. Uh, you cannot eat, you know, their slaughtered meat, for instance. So I think even the progressive ones, when you press them hard, they really can't deviate from original Salafi thinking when it comes to the Shia. Um, as you were saying earlier, Clemens, I think in terms of responding to the state, um, and especially when the state promotes reconciliation efforts, King Abdullah himself, um, or the former king, um, promoted reconciliation efforts, his national dialogue when he was a crown prince, uh, in which he promoted collaboration with the Shia, or at least repair, tried to repair relations with the Shia. Some Salafi ulama, particularly the progressive ulama, really embarked on that project. And I think because they genuinely believe that it's important for you to work with the Shia in order for you to create a harmonious um, society, a harmonious Saudi Arabia. And if you want to avoid Iranian influence and Iran being able to destabilize the kingdom, it's important for you to pacify your own citizens. So that's why they embrace that project. And I think generally because they really do promote reconciliation, but there are not many of them, um, at least uh, in the nineties and so on. 
Thanks, Raihan, for answering my questions. Uh, I'm going to put my own questions on hold now because we do have some from the floor. And I think uh, you, you mentioned his name uh, one too many times, Zoltan. So Zoltan has a question for you and it, it just came in. Um, so his question is, uh, can you outline a bit more about your methodology? And have you managed to interview the Salafi sheikhs that you mentioned in your book? As far as I understand, you consider the quietist slash activist dichotomy more driven by local sociopolitical circumstances than by ideology, unlike uh, wage makers, for example. Mm -hmm. um, this brings me him, to the conclusion that you have to set up a new typology with the start of every Salafism related project. So that is uh, his mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so again, a very good question. Um, I know you've, you know, your work, very familiar with your work, you've interviewed Salafi clerics and so on. Um, I haven't, unfortunately. I think I initially wanted to go to Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and then the pandemic hit and it was just almost impossible for me to travel. Um, but also I think there were limitations on my part in terms of uh, being able to interview them. Um, what I've done in terms of my methodology is rely on periodicals. Um, I've also relied on their sermons, um, lectures, and religious rulings, for instance. And I think that's definitely um, an issue on my part because I've always wanted to be able to interview them, but I wasn't really sure um, if that was going to work or not. But something that I've also done is kind of send them questions. Um, and asking them to respond to my to my questions because they are often very active. Um, they have Twitter accounts. They have their websites. Hakim Al Mutairi, for example, has his own site where you can ask uh, questions, and then they will he will respond to your to your questions and so on. So you know, short answer: No, I haven't really interviewed these clerics. Um, in terms of um, the typology, um, I I do agree that ideology and theology plays an but what I've realized is also these clerics, at least from my from my understanding and my conclusion, is that they're very much influenced by uh, their circumstances as well. Um, their exposure to issues, for instance, would kind of compel them to reassess their position. In Egypt, for instance, a number of ulama in Egypt, because of their relations with Christian communities and the fact that they have to make sure and maintain relations with the Coptic communities in Egypt, um, they are very careful when addressing uh, the Coptic communities in Egypt. And here, as you've said, I do introduce different typologies when it comes to addressing different issues. And that's why the book you know, is titled Rethinking Salafism. Um, because of that domestic circumstances, but more importantly, how these clerics often reassess how they also change their attitudes towards issues. Um, when it comes to social liberalization and social conservatism, I argue that the ulama can be divided into two categories, and that is uh, progressive and traditionalist. And here, the traditionalist ulama on the issue of women, on the issue of um, you know, relations with Copts, uh, relations with Christians and so on, you do have Salafi ulama who reassess their positions and they take a more liberal approach to issues. Music, the beard, um, and so on, they do take a different, uh, different approach. The niqab, again, some of them take a different approach. And they argue that maybe we need to move away from traditional Salafi thinking and reassess Salafi literature, 
Um, and you do have ulama who advocate for, for reform within Salafism. Hatim al Aoun is one of them. Um, uh, Osama al Qusi, in, uh, not Osama al Qusi, sorry. Oh dear, I can't remember the name. Sorry, in Egypt, a number of them are in Egypt as well, but they're not many of them. Um, so again, very minorities within 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 Salafism. Adil al Kalbani is another another alim as well, uh, who would say that women should be allowed to drive, um, and taking a different approach, different interpretations. Um, so I would argue that yes, you do have that collective solidarity or you know transnational interpretations uh, advocated by these clerics, but at the same time, they're also governed by their local circumstances as well as their own reassessment of Salafi thinking and Salafi, uh, Salafi thought and so on. I hope I've answered your question. Thanks, Raihan. And then thanks for your questions, Zoltan. Um, we've got another question from my colleague Asif Shuja, who's a senior research fellow here with, with us today. Um, and his question is, what troubles Islam? What, what ails Islam? How have you attempted to tackle this question uh, in your book and how, what can scholars do to alleviate that? And, and perhaps I could add a bit more to his question is, you know, you talked a lot about uh, ijtihad and, and, you know, how different scholars, different clerics exercise independent reasoning. You know, early in your book, and, and no, have you encountered that? You know, any discrepancies in terms of how this is received from the ummah? This number one, and and, and number two, uh, the embrace of modern technology, which you also describe in your book as uh, there was some resistance to that, and until you know the early two thousands, you, you talk about satellite television, you talked about the internet. What about now? You know, what what how how is this uh, embrace of technology? being received now by the clerics and also how it's received on, on, on the followers part, you know, what, what do we see in terms of trends now? So over to you. No, of course, uh, again, excellent question. Thank you so much, Asif, for, for that question. Um, so I'll answer the question, you know, embracing technology and what does it mean for um, Salafi um, adherents as well as the ulama. And, the Salafis always believe that deviation or innovation is a problem. Um, you know, you can't really, you know, promote um, innovation, for example. And according to um, Salafis, let me just have a look. There is a, a slide that I have here that I was going to share with everyone. Yeah, every novelty, I'm just going to read it out loud. Every novelty, this is a prophet's tradition. I'm just translating it. Every novelty is an innovation. Every innovation is a misguidance and every misguidance belongs to hellfire. And you hear this a lot in Salafi um, sermons, in religious rulings, for instance, when they're answering questions and so on. Um, but what I've discovered as well, it depends on how you define innovation. Um, and here, the Saudi religious establishment in particular, um, and used, and this ruling is used by other Salafis as well when addressing um, something such as technology. They would argue that, you know, technology is fine. It's only religious innovation that we have a problem with. Um, so social media, that's all right. Most of them have Twitter accounts anyway. They have their own official YouTube uh, account. Um, and I think this has been the case for a very long time, particularly uh, members of the Saudi religious establishment um, 
Ibn Saud himself, Abdul Aziz Ibn Saud himself initially introduced the radio and the ulama were horrified because they thought this is you know, a terrible innovation and we're moving away from our religious tradition. But he played the Quran uh, and invited all the clerics to come and listen to the Quran. And therefore many argued that, oh yeah, that's actually not a bad thing. So we can listen to the Quran. So he himself was very clever when engaging with the ulama. And I think that um, position persisted in terms of accepting uh, innovation, but not religious innovation. So the way you pray, the Shia, for example, Sufi um, traditions and so on, um, are considered as religious innovation. So they have um, an issue with religious innovation, but not um, you know, technology or other form of innovation. So I hope I've answered that, that, that question. And I think that's, that persisted. Um, in terms of understanding um, and so on, on the part of the Salafi ulama, um, and they advocate that quite uh, widely. Thanks, Raihan. We got another question from uh, Thomas Frank Marie Chauvinier. Hope I got your chevre. Sorry. Uh, his question is: uh, You mentioned music and changes, changes in attitudes towards music. Are you saying that they would accept? I guess the clerics would accept styles such as Mahragan in Egypt, or, you know, the street music. Uh, mm. Yeah, that was the question. Yeah. yeah, of course. Thank you so much, Thomas. Um, I, I, would, I would say that they will not accept that because it's considered as um, not an Islamic practice for sure, um, because music has always been very divisive um, within the Salafi tradition, even within the Muslim Brotherhood tradition, even within Al-Azhar's tradition as well. We have clerics who are more conservative and ulama who are more conservative and have had issues with, with music. Um, but there are progressive voices even within the Salafi tradition. And I would say they talk about musical instruments and someone like Hatim Al-Awni, Adil Al-Kalbani, they would argue that in some music is acceptable, that is fine because you have to look at the prophet's tradition. The prophet never really prohibited music uh, or listening to music. So they're very careful um, and they have, I would use this word, they have copped a lot of abuse uh, from other Salafi clerics because they're saying, what are you trying to invent Salafism? Uh, so these minority voices have challenge um, Salafi position towards music, um, but again, the minority voices. Uh, someone um, in Egypt, I keep forgetting his name, but one of the Salafi ulama in Egypt even said that, oh, you can listen to Umu Kulsum. How can you not listen to Umu Kulsum or Abdul Halim Hafiz? And he's a Salafi alim. Um, so again, taking a different position, but someone like him is far removed from Salafi ideals, despite the fact that he claims to be a strong Salafi, for instance. So you do have minority voices, but very small uh, number of ulama who would say that music is permissible, but something like Mahragan would be, would be uh, too radical for them to accept. I hope I've answered your question, Thomas. Thanks, Raihan, and thanks, Thomas, for your question. Uh, in a blink of an eye, we are coming to a close to the session. It's almost an hour. Uh, but I would like to ask one final question to our speaker for today, and that's, that has to do with our region, Southeast Asia. And, uh, you know, you discuss, we venture a bit further out from your book, and we I would like to know, you know, in your findings, you know, have you come across, you know, the connections between the Middle East and Asia in terms of uh, the Salafi Alama that, that you're talking about, and that you wrote about, and 
what can you say in general about the influence that has been uh, from one region to another? So over to you. Hmm. Um, thank you so much, Clemens. That's a very good question, and I will be demonstrating my ignorance if I if I try and answer this question too much. Uh, and I know Zoltan has written a lot on uh, Salafism in Cambodia. I thought that's really fascinating um, in terms of the Salafi influence in Cambodia. Um, I haven't really um, looked at Salafism in Southeast Asia for sure, but I've also noticed um, there's some activities in Indonesia, particularly with Kuwaiti Salafis. Uh, sometimes when I'm looking at Islam in Indonesia, we'll find that Salafi clerics in Indonesia have been you know, um, traveling to Indonesia and also working with Salafis in Indonesia. So you see a bit of that as well. What's interesting in the context of Malaysia, um, I'm half Malaysian, so and I do have some um, friends who've traveled to Saudi Arabia and kind of brought back that Salafi ideology to Malaysia as well. Um, and many of them, they went to Islamic University of Medina, received scholarship from the Saudi government. So you do have that link with uh, Malaysia as well, particularly the state, um, the most northern state of Malaysia, state of Perlis. So it's very much, um, it's kind of almost um, a talk and a, a discussion in Malaysia that Perlis is very much a Salafi state. To what extent that is true? Of course, it's debatable, and many of them also have to respond to local circumstances. They can't come back to Perlis or come back to Malaysia and claim to be a Salafi. It's not that popular in Malaysia. So, of course, you do have resistance as well. But in terms of the interpretations of Islam, some would argue that they're influenced by their religious training in Saudi Arabia. So, you know, a bit here and there. But as I've said earlier, I'll be demonstrating my ignorance big time if I talk about it too much. Well, Raihan, thank you so much for joining us today and answering all the questions. I think it was an excellent discussion. And also thank you to the audience for putting in your questions. Um, I think we covered a great deal of ground. So Raihan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you to Sharon uh, for organizing this and setting up the Zoom. And to the audience, we hope to see you more on our events. Raihan, thank you for hey, taking time. Thank you time. so much for having me. Thanks, everyone. Thanks and goodbye. Thanks, Raihan. Thanks.